and welcome to another thrilling uh, class in the bunker. Glad that you're uh, joining us today. Um, this is going to be kind of an important lesson, I think, and I, I hope that it has a lot of uh, salience uh, for for people as we're looking at a lot of things. Uh, um, again, uh, just. Make sure you, you know, when you hop on, leave us a message about where you're uh, listening from. We always love doing that. And like the page and, and say hello, because uh, we like to know that, that you were here. And, and thanks so much. Now, for those of you who may be jumping in about halfway through here, the idea has been through this last year that we are looking at the Old Testament through the, the eyes of the covenant and the eyes of the Savior. And we're trying to find the Savior in the Old Testament and the things that really jump out at us. And we're about to hit a part as we start talking about uh, Moses. We're going to hit a very impactful part uh, as we see a Christ figure arise and show us some things about uh, some laws and things that lasted for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, as we do so, um, I want to start off by identifying, if I can, um, so, something that I kind of call the, uh, this is the loam disease. Uh, it's, a, it's a worrisome disease. It seems to inflict uh, a lot of pain and suffering in a lot of places. And most people, it's almost like being asymptomatic to uh, the, the virus. You don't know that you have it, but man, when you start taking a look at it, you realize you got it. And it's highly infectious and it can be spread. So we want to start looking today and talk for a, a little while about having loam disease. Uh, and loam, of course, uh, translates to the, the law of Moses. A law of Moses disease? Yes. And it's a problem and has been uh, forever and ever. Now, there are two particular at-risk groups that, while, while we all may be affected to some extent with Lyme disease, there are two groups that I think are even more affected uh, to Lyme disease, uh, two particularly sensitive groups that we're going to try and vaccinate and inoculate a little bit today. Uh, group number one, this is those that tend to be perfectionists. Those that uh, are going to try and do everything possible, they're well-intentioned, they don't want to do the wrong things, they desire to do the right things. Um, and, but the problem is, is that when they are inflicted with Lyme disease, we have a large problem there with anxiety and or depression. And it does, it's unrelenting and it doesn't let go. And I have a lot of people in my office that really struggle with Lyme disease. And for some of you, you know who you are uh, and, and the effect that it has on you, especially when we start describing it in a little bit more details, uh, the things to look for in Lyme disease. The second group uh, is tough. It's those that have some kind of doubts about either themselves and their worthiness or about those that become, uh, that struggle with church history or church doctrine enough that they end up uh, leaving the church because either they feel hurt, they feel angry, they feel betrayed. Because sometimes they were trying to do number one and it didn't work and they become number two. 
sometimes they have been surrounded by a lot of number ones and don't and get either get disillusioned by it or get tired of listening to it or they just stop believing in number one and it really is this subtle virus and it's a way of looking at the world that has really affected them okay now Let's, let's, take a, let's take just a couple of minutes and hang with me on this. I want us to see where Lyme disease comes from. And in some ways, it's a very natural process, and it just really occurs. Um, and so really, the, the source of law of, of Moses-itis, if you will, um, are those, it's, it's how we look at the world. And perceptually, we all have these windows, these lenses, by which we look at things, we judge things through this window. And there's a particular window here that causes a problem. Okay, let's talk about this particular window for just a second. Okay, this is what I call our mortal law and order view of the world. Societies in general, and I'm certainly not a sociologist by any case, I'll leave that to other people. But our law and order view of things is that we we create laws to prevent chaos. If we're not sure how to handle things, we're going to create laws, a system of things that you can do, shouldn't do, can't do, and this enables us to avoid any kind of chaos um, and we can know that we can actually uh, safely do things and move forward in societies and generally this isn't a self-imposed thing usually we have uh, handed up the line to a king and then later to uh, people that we elected and so we get governments and situations and homeowners associations they're going to create laws to prevent chaos now what does that look like then well if we're going to have laws what you can do and what you can't do then it just naturally falls. You've got to have some police or law in law enforcement agency that's going to make darn sure that the laws that we've created get kept. We're going to make sure it gets done. We're going to make sure that everybody knows that we're supposed to be following the laws. The rule of law is critical to all this. But it only works if we're all doing it. So we especially get upset when we are keeping the laws and somebody else isn't because, dang it, that's not fair and that threatens mine. You know, we, we've been getting these debates on wearing masks or not. And you see some, is this a law or not? You know, and you're keeping me safe or I'm trying to keep safe or I am safe. That's a struggle, okay? Now, if we're going to have laws then and we're going to have police that help us enforce now we need it, it necessitates a creation of a court that's going to determine if somebody has broken a law has there been a crime committed we're going to evaluate from witnesses and knowledge and what we saw and all those kind of things do we know if you kept the law or not because if there's enough suspicion that you've committed a crime, meaning that you broke the law, then we kick into place all of our law and order uh, 
parts of our society to make sure that chaos doesn't reign and make sure that people keep obeying the laws. Now, that's when we have to employ attorneys. The job of an attorney or a lawyer is to make sure that it's all fair. There's one set of attorneys that are going to make sure that the laws are enforced and that anybody breaking the law, committing a crime, will be punished. There's another set of attorneys whose job is to make sure that if you're being charged for a crime that your rights are protected, the laws that protect you uh, to be unfairly or unjustly accused or, or uh, convicted of a crime. So we have a whole set of lawyers whose job is to make sure that everything stays fair. In theory, that's how it's supposed to work, right? Well, okay. Um, now, ultimately, once that crime has been assessed and there's a determination that, yes, for sure, you broke the law, you should be punished, and, and now we have to make sure that if you have committed a crime, we've identified you as somebody who is breaking laws. Now we need to make sure that penalties are attached. And those penalties have to make sure that uh, for the rule of law, if you broke a law, there must be a punishment. And that punishment must be proportional to what you did. We don't take people to death row for shoplifting a candy bar. That just wouldn't be fair. And we don't slap people on the hand that have robbed a bank. It has to be proportional, and it's the job of a judge to make sure that the crime that was, was a crime broken, and if it was, and we determine it is, and you're a criminal, now we're going to assess a penalty to make sure that you pay for that crime because that's how you pay your debt. We use the word debt. You have to pay your debt to society to make sure that that crime is less likely to be committed again and that other people around you can see that criminals get prosecuted so they will second guess whether they decide to rob a bank or steal a candy bar because we prosecute people who steal candy bars in our store. So that will be a deterrent. Uh, and so we have judges that are going to pronounce the penalties and we're going to know what the penalties are and they're not pleasant penalties because in some cases we're going to say because you are a criminal and you are going to perpetrate crimes against somebody else we need to lock you away sometimes for the purpose of just protecting other people you are a threat you're a danger we're going to put you behind bars so you no longer commit crimes against good people in our society and sometimes it's just to make sure that the prison experience and not having your freedom is so noxious and so unpainful that we're going to lock you away so that it's, it's an undesirable place to be. You don't get to come and go where you want to go. And because of that, you will think twice before you commit any more crimes because you don't want to go to prison with other criminals who have committed crimes because we are, we've now branded you somehow that you are a problem to our rule of law. 
And that, so this ends up being uh, our criminal justice system, our system of law and order. And from the very first point at which we started having kings who would execute this, uh, and, and pharaohs and Caesars, when we started going towards a place where we're gonna, chaos is kept in place by the rule of law and not by an army that's going to kill you every time the king sends them, this is the world through which we look at that need to keep laws and to keep commandments. Because with this window through which we look, now we did an interesting, very, very mortal, very human thing that we did that when we came in contact now with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, the, and what he brought to the world, part of the great reconciliation of the family of man back to live with him. He instituted a gospel, a set of things that we were to be doing that would help transform us and change us. And then it says that he gave us commandments that would help in this process. Well, a very human thing to do. We hear commandments and what we're going to hear is laws. And once we go there, once living the commandments are seen as laws and what's breaking the commandments we start to see those as sins then what happens is we start to impose we superimpose what we know about the world and criminal justice we start laying that over the top of the gospel and brothers and sisters that's pretty fatal that was a was a uh, catastrophic change to try and institute a mortal set of laws by which society full of lots of natural men and women who do are trying to do good things but they tend to do a lot of bad things and so we created laws to keep them in check and stuff like that. The minute we picked that whole thing up and we dropped it on the gospel picture. It changed forever how we saw the gospel and created Lyme disease in the process. How did that work? Well, how we viewed what Jesus brought to the earth and what Abraham lived and what, Abraham and what Adam was taught, once we ran it through the Lyme disease filter, it altered it. So, in what way? Let's take a look at just a couple of them for a second. And then, we'll, and then we'll see how far we get today. And then we'll continue on next week when we really talk about the imposition of the law of Moses and why that landed and how that even affects us uh, in our daily life, I think, today. So here's what happens when we impose that mortal window, that view, that set of structures, that paradigm on God's perfect plan and how we manage to kind of mess it up at certain points along the way. Okay? So, initially what we understood, what Adam understood, what the patriarchs understood, what Jesus was teaching, I think what Paul clearly understood 
and what I think Joseph Smith came to understand was that we came from loving parents in heaven that we are of heavenly parenthood and that they are our loving parents that got translated over the centuries with the imposition of this filter with this window those loving parents became an angry vengeful God looking to inflict trials on us to teach us lessons or to punish us for our wrongdoing Again, whenever I ask a group, uh, do you want to pray for patience? They go, no, 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 we don't want to pay for patience. This vengeful God gives us trials every time we pray for patience. We know how he works. So don't ask for patience because he's a vengeful God looking to inflict this stuff on us as fast as possible. Now, certainly in the Middle Ages, uh, there was very much a sense, and even into the Reformation, there was a sense of this angry, distant, vengeful God that's going to come and get you, and he's really ticked off at all of the bad stuff you keep doing, you mortal scum. And so th- that, that got changed when we, when we imposed this different window. Now, Jesus supplied us then with commandments given to teach us how to love commandments to teach us and transform us into people that we're able to love. That got changed, didn't it? From giving guidelines about how to become like him to crimes that when you that require punishments when they get discovered. If you have broken the law, then you need to be punished. Rather than a Sabbath as a day to uh, enjoy and to worship God, Sabbath became, and the rules around the Sabbath became to a place where if a man walked too far, he could be killed. The death penalty could be imposed for collecting sticks, as we were talking about in another class. Why? Because it had become a vengeful, angry God who was going to inflict punishment on anybody who would break his commandments because we have somehow impugned God's honor if we have broken the laws, we've broken the, the, uh, the law and order of things. Okay, So punishments have to be applied. There's no getting out of that thing. Now, when we, under, under the, what Jesus was implementing, that desire to recognize that what we were doing in, in, in going contrary to the laws of God was a desire to turn around and learn to serve him better, to come to our senses, as John the Baptist would say, and simply turn around and be better and have some remorse about what happened because we would understand that the things that we were doing would act very much like a virus in the sense that it would corrupt our nature, corrupt our behavior, corrupt our actions uh, to that point where people around us would be hurt. And we would very, very much be remorseful about the things that happened. So we turn around and we would try to become better people. Well, that got turned around, didn't it? Rather than this desire to turn around and change, 
that that got changed in the fourth century we know that repentance then became something that somebody must pay for because a crime had been committed and penance was demanded because that was the only way to somehow pay for that crime because otherwise it's not fair and you need to have pain and suffering inflicted on you and the idea for Dante uh, for instance was people being burned and suffering and tortured in hell for all of the crimes that they committed because they were horrible people and this was God's desire that everybody should suffer and that they should hurt and so repentance required penance and repentance required punishment because somehow instead of a loving parents in heaven we had a vengeful God trying to pay this out. And think about, again, those of us as parents, we were talking about this last week. Those of us as parents, what parent is going to say, I'm going, because you walk too far on the Sabbath, I'm going to inflict pain and suffering and maybe even death on you just so that you know the horrible things that you did because your actions need to be paid for, dang it, uh, because otherwise my honor's been impugned. You see how we drifted um, and, and the catastrophicness that that created. Now, we'll take it one step farther. Because <sighs> this is one I think that it, this part of lone disease I think afflicts, especially Latter-day Saints because we have a little better knowledge and understanding. Being born into mortality, the scriptures say, means that we will be proven. God even says, prove me. We're going to be proven. And that means like the rising of a doe, which is proving a doe in, in, in British language, uh, that we're going to be proven. Meaning we're going to be proven. We're going to be grown. We're going to develop. We're going to grow bigger. We're going to fulfill kind of our, our full destiny kind of thing. Yeast helps things be proven to grow. We're going to come to mortality to grow and to be proven. How did we turn that around under the influence of that lone disease filter on which we looked at mortality? Well, voila! Now suddenly we came to earth to be tested. And, and we understand testing if we've ever been to school. You can pass a test, you can fail a test. You can pass a test and get an A. You can pass a test and get a B or a C. And depending on how well you uh, pass that test may determine where you end up. But still, in this life, you don't take a test without there's a chance that you might fail. And that failure is going to determine a lot of things. Rather than the provenness, where you're going to say, there are going to be challenges that, and a bit of a test that comes into your life that give you a chance to learn and understand what you don't yet know. And then you're going to take that knowledge and prove it and move forward with that added knowledge. No, that provenness became a test. And, and, and the ultimate test was going to be what the early 
Nephites really struggled with, and I think to a certain extent the first generation of the church, because it's what they understood because they had this law and order, loam disease that had been placed over their minds and over their culture. Then we get to Judgment Day. Ah, Judgment Day, right? Which Judgment Day in the eyes of, for instance, Elder Uchtdorf says, Judgment Day is a time to evaluate our eternal progress to that moment, learn where we are growing, learn where we have fallen short, and keep moving. Judgment Day was supposed to be a day of evaluation to give us knowledge and understanding about where, where we yet struggle. I don't think every time you have taken a final exam in your life at a college or class or something like that, that that became the last time you took a test. There were more exams along the way. It's just that that particular test told you that it had reached a certain stage of knowledge and understanding. If you pass it well, then you move on to the next one. Okay, That was the idea of Judgment Day. Well, again, for that early, for those early Nephite saints, Judgment Day was pretty scary, pretty frightening thing. And I think it is especially true for those with Loam disease who are looking at Judgment Day as a day that my imperfections will be found out or that hokey kind of thing that uh, Christians believe in and we hate all of that kind of stuff. So we have to be very, very aware of where we are. Okay? Now, that then, so this wonderful judgment moment of evaluation became that final fail or pass moment where the judge's gavel is suspended in the air. He's about to gavel down the sentence and it determines our last eternal existence. Will that gavel say terrestrial kingdom? Will that gavel say outer darkness? Will that gavel say you made it for eternity? You passed the test. You had enough high scores that were going to then graduate you. But mostly we're thinking, oh my gosh, it's judgment day and I'm toast. Now, Christianity wanted to then step in and say, you will all fail. That's what Luther believed. That's what John Calvin believed. You will all fail. That's why Christ has to come in and take the test. And you will, get, you will make it into heaven, you scruffy dog, only because Jesus took it for you, passed the test, and in you go. Now, one more thing. I need, I need to see that, have us understand then, what if we take away this false window, this false uh, perception of things, we'll see the real plan, the real plan. And the real plan is beautiful in its power and it's beautiful in its simplicity. And it's basically this. We have been invited, those of you who are listening, you've been invited to collaborate with our heavenly parents. 
in order to reconcile the entire family of mankind to each other and to their God. That's the plan of happiness. We've been invited to participate in this great mortal adventure with our heavenly parents to reconcile the family of man to each other and to their God. Where the, the lone disease fogs our vision. A well-intentioned but tragic over-focus on our own self-righteousness can completely distract us from our true calling. It ain't about us. If you love me, feed my sheep. As you love one another, people will know that you're my disciples. I will know where you are in your progress by your love, by your kindness, by your service. It ain't about you. It's about working together with us to reconcile them back to us. Now, critical side note that sometimes I think we miss in this law and orderness, and it's our particular brand, I think, within our church. And it's this. The good news, and the real good news, is that we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are not alone in this great work. We're not. There are many, 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 many others now and in the past and in the future in other walks of life, in other faith traditions who are also involved in this work of reconciling the family of man to their God. And they're doing it with their level of understanding and under great inspiration. This is too big a work for us to do on our own. Now, some that are involved in this great work of reconciliation are aware. I would say most of the good people on the earth are not aware that they're act that the work they're actually involved in is our Heavenly Father's great plan. But, without that knowledge, they love and serve and demonstrate kindness to everybody around them. Anybody who knows them becomes better because they're in their uh, acquaintance, because they are on the receiving end of their love. Well, sometimes I think as Latter-day Saints, we look at it and go, wait, 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 we thought we had it. We thought it was about us. We thought we're the ones that were supposed to do it all. No, there's no way that we do this all. It's too big. It's way too big. But our particular role as members of the church through our temple work is to provide what I would, what I would call a spiritual trust fund for all of these great people. And whether it's in it happens in this life or a million years from now, they will find that sacred ordinances have been performed for them. To their joy, great people will be moving forward 
and they will find that there was a spiritual trust fund they did not know was available to them. What a joyful moment that will be. Because that trust fund will help them complete their transformation into people who will be comfortable living with heavenly parents. And for most of them, they may be way down the path and so close. And they simply need those ordinances as the last remaining step. And our particular role as Latter-day Saints is that we will have provided that beautiful, wonderful, powerful gift to very, very good transformed people to easily step into God's presence and into exaltation. That's, that really is basically it. Now, Brigham Young said it in kind of his own Brigham Youngness sort of way. Others say, where is my crown? Where is my increase? I earned this, darn it. Where is my glory? And and they are looking after pay all the time. He would he felt exaltation as pay. You know, the, the bigger mansion in heaven versus the little mansion for the lesser people. That would be fair. They're looking after pay all the time. I say Look after your duty. Seek to know it and to do it. And it's all and it's all right about your pay. Now that your pay will take care of itself. Quit focusing on yourself and your own righteousness with a goal towards what little reward or payment you'll get cuz you've done good and just love and just serve and lose yourself in the service of others. And it'll be all right about your pay. I'll risk it, he says. Some are afraid that they will come short of going into the celestial kingdom. And they wonder if they will be saved with the sanctified. Have I put enough uh, spiritual money in the bank? Did I make it or not? Do I need to focus more on myself and get me there? Listen to his response to that. I don't care anything about it. I have enlisted in the service of my God and I will leave it to him what he will do with me. I think Brigham Young got it. I think Brigham Young understood where he was. Brothers and sisters, next week we will begin to move into uh, Exodus 3. And we're going to start in Exodus 3 starting to talk about Moses and his journey to becoming who he was and what Moses was really trying to do with a group of people that for 400 years had been living under another system. And you're going to watch the journey that it took for him to try and get them there, and then the wanderings that it would take in the wilderness while they still didn't get it. 
Well, they're still trying to figure it out. Now, in the meantime, between now and then, brothers and sisters, can we recognize the great plan of happiness? And it's the real plan. Again, we have been invited, you and I, to collaborate with heavenly beings in order to reconcile and to work with the rest of the world to reconcile the family of man to each other as peacemakers and to their God as examples of Christianity and what the Savior was trying to teach. Now, as, as others have said it better than me, if you can't get excited about that, then you don't understand what you're looking at. Because that is a thrilling opportunity. Not so much based on law and order, but based on participating in the work of reconciliation and peacemaking along shoulder to shoulder with the good people of the earth who are striving to do the same thing. I bear you my witness that the Lord intends us to be those people and to love as we can love and serve as we can love and serve as we serve. And I bear you that witness and I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.